the Purpose Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. We're all about delivering great content, thoughtful discussions, and tips and tricks to help you truly get the most out of your life and business. And here's your charismatic host, me, Matt Brown. Hey, hey, what a Friday. What a Friday. If you're wondering who this guy is who's hosting this podcast, you might not recognize my voice. I'm Matt Browning, same host as always. However, I'm starting to lose my voice today. Um, as I record this open uh, for Interview Friday, it is the, f- uh, the first night right now of our three-day influence seminar. So we are rocking in Orange County, California. And a select lucky group of people are in for the ride of their life as we just finished day one out of three for NLP Influence, all about how to leverage your speaking, your influence, and your confidence from stage. So we're taking everyone through everything from, again, from speaking, from stage work, uh, and ultimately we're talking about how to influence yourself and influence others. And I've been talking about it all day long. So my voice is almost gone. I'll make this open pretty short and sweet. This week, I have a extremely cool entrepreneur. His name is David Schreiner Khan out of New York, East Coast boy. And David is, uh, well, he's got a really popular podcast called Smashing the Plateau. He's been at Smashing the Plateau for four years and has done over 400 episodes. So check that out. It's a phenomenal business podcast, actually in the same category as I am, marketing and management. And uh, he's interviewed some really, really great entrepreneurs over the years. Forbes and Inc. list uh, list him as, a, as one of the five entrepreneurs that will change the way you communicate if you follow their teachings. So that's a pretty cool accolade from him. We talk in the interview about how David, you know, he's, he's done a lot of great stuff. He has a phenomenal podcast. He has um, an awesome book called Fire Your Business Coach. And one of the cool things I like about him is his, his journey and how he's gone uh, shifting and changing over the years. So we talk about how he went from being a project manager, a project engineer, to the director of a synagogue. And from the director of a synagogue to starting his entire, his own system as a consultant, he has what's called the TEND system, and he started TEND Company. And what they do is specifically designed to take advantage of existing resources from your team. So they'll go into a company, and they'll find the resources your team already has, building upon the successes they've already achieved, and then integrating and managing structured changes with built-in accountability, and this is the best part, without adding excessive workload or unnecessary expensive. So what he's really doing in a nutshell is using what you already have to make you more efficient, more profitable, uh, and happier in in business. So very excited to have him on. This conversation goes all different directions, as it always does. We talk about growing up. We talk about what that was like, what sparked him as an entrepreneur, and then ultimately what he does in businesses today. You can learn a lot from this guy, David Schreiner Khan. I'm very, very excited to share one of my new friends with you. Without any further ado, Mr. Schreiner Khan. So I'm finally here. I have been waiting for this for a while. Mr. David Schreiner Khan, how are you, my friend? Good. How are you, Matt? Good, good. Thank you for uh, making the time right in the middle of your afternoon, all the way from New York City. Uh, I know you're a busy guy, and uh, I certainly appreciate you coming on the pod. Um, how's your week going so far? Um, it's great. What day is today? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is a Tuesday. Um, yeah, the week has gone great. How's your week going? Yeah, outstanding, outstanding. I always say it's it's been busy yet peaceful, if that makes any sense. 
lot going on, but uh, I've dropped a lot of the hectic feelings that I used to have early in business. Um, and now it just kind of feels constantly busy, but constantly peaceful. It's a really nice, uh, nice blend. You know, that is a great blend. Good integration. Right. Exactly. Um, so I, I want to chat with you. You, uh, obviously I, I, t- I talked about, about you in the open, um, with your podcast. I, I didn't realize oh, I had 350 episodes in, in your bio. You are, are embarking on the 400th episode of smashing the plateau podcast. Is that right? Yeah, well, actually, as of the date of recording this episode with you, we have already recorded our 400th episode, but it has not yet been released. Man, that is incredible. And you said you've been at this for four years just with this particular podcast already. Correct. Yeah. And I was saying just before we went to tape, um, man, four years is like dinosaur, like dog years for a, for a podcast. That's probably a way to say it. It's, it's like in the old days, someone was in business 28 years. That's what it feels like to be in a podcast for four years. Um, so many don't last and yours certainly has, which is a, is a testament to you. Um, w- what brought you into the idea of even creating a podcast in the first place? Well, as a platform, I I want to talk more about your idea and kind of what you do, but why a podcast? Was that first or was that something that came at the end uh, after you'd already been doing this business work? um, Well, it was was another iteration. I I think most things in business and in life are iterations on something else, either something else that you've done before or something else that somebody else has done before. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, Thomas Edison with a light bulb. He's not the, the sole reason why we have light bulbs today. And, and also the first one that he tried to bring the market was not the one that worked. So, right. um, yeah, so in my case, the podcast actually was the next step after doing text-based interviews that we were releasing on our blog. Oh, okay. So blog interviews. It's funny, I was just uh, chatting with, uh, I think, probably a mutual friend, Tyler Basu. I'm not sure if you, you know Tyler yet or not. Um, he was probably at, because I met you at a, at a podcast conference, didn't I? Yes. Yep. New Media so, Summit. Yep. New Media Summit a couple months ago. And Tyler was there as well. I met him there. He started off doing a magazine. It was all blog, art of you, uh, uh, interviews and articles with entrepreneurs. And then eventually it morphed into you know the same platform. Fascinating how that works. Because uh, I started off doing all live events and live workshops, and I've produced you know probably 500 live events and workshops over the last 10 years, and uh, so for me that was always the world of get me in front of people, and then I kind of fought the idea of having more of a media style uh, um, uh, business base, right? More of let me broadcast to you and broadcast to a lot more people. Have you always been comfortable, I suppose, with the idea of? a bunch of people listening or watching you and, and being out in the spotlight? Or were you one of those guys that was kind of behind the spotlight, happy to help and serve? And so I guess, was it a struggle to come in emotionally or was it something that you're always happy to do since whenever? Oh, um, I'd never done anything like this before. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and frankly, before starting a blog, I had never really produced a whole lot of stuff that was out there for people to see, period. Um, so yeah, I was happy to serve, um, did good quality work, had great relationships with the people I served, the people who were colleagues, et cetera, um, but hadn't produced much in the way of content until maybe, I don't know, six years ago or so. Wow. So before that, now are you, did you grow up in New York? Um, I've been in a bunch of different places. Um, I did grow up in the on the East Coast, I started my life on the Jersey Shore. Uh, <laughs> you may have heard of Asbury Park. Yeah, a, a guy named Bruce Springsteen made it famous. 
Yes. When I was a kid, it was definitely not famous. Um, neither, neither was Bruce. Um, and I've lived in a Bruce. bunch of different places. What? Just you and Brucey hanging out. Not yeah, even famous much. yet. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so he wasn't there yet. Of, he, well, he's a little older than me. So yeah, he did, he did exist and he lived not too far away. Yeah. Uh, but he was not well known. And Snooky wasn't there yet. Um, definitely not. <laughs> okay. So, so you grew up on the Jersey shore. Right. And, and what, what was family like growing up? Uh, do you, do you have brothers and sisters? Two sisters. Two sisters. So the yeah. only boy. The only boy. Only boy. Are you the youngest? Middle. Oldest? Middle. Middle, middle child syndrome. Did you have that? The probably, middle child syndrome? Probably. Yeah. So like my brother was a middle child. I'm the baby. And so my sister's the oldest. And my brother was constantly middle child syndrome. He was getting in trouble all the time. Kicked out of junior highs. Kicked out of high schools. Um, a, lot of, a lot of interesting younger stuff. Did you find yourself getting in trouble as a middle child? Or did you, like, what was that like as a, in your family? Um, great question. I was somebody who was never crazy about rules being imposed by other people. I don't know mm -hmm. if that's a middle child thing or not. It's probably that, that piece that also sparks the entrepreneur in us too. Not, I mean, I've never been in favor of, of rules being imposed. I've learned to respect the reason why most of them are there, but it's still to this day, I don't know if you relate to this, but it's hard for me to, to respect rules that I can't figure out why they exist. Me too. Yeah. I'm like, I'm happy to follow them, but just tell me why. And, and I watched my son, he's seven years old and he, he does that same thing. I remember a couple of years ago in preschool, he's in first grade now. Um, but in preschool, one of the teachers talked to us and said, Hey, you know, we got to talk to you about Val, you know, here's what happened. And basically they just explained that that exact scenario. They said, we, they were playing with this potted plant area and they said, Oh, we can't do that. And he was like, well, how come? And that, so now he's talking back to us and that's a big uh, challenge. And <laughs> so I laughed and said, thank you so much. I went home and, and gave him a high five. I said, I'm so, I love your brain. I love how you're thinking. <laughs> that's really good. Um, so uh, are you close with your sisters? Um, yeah, pretty close. Yeah. yeah. Did, uh, did you guys st stick around the same areas? Are they all still in the East Coast, New York, Jersey area or people moved on and moved away? Um, one of my sisters actually lives two towns over from where we grew up. Wow. So, yeah. So, so yeah. So we're all geographically pretty close by. Small town. Yeah. And which, did, which, uh, is, which is unusual in today's world. Right. Yeah. So my sister lives in, in Orange still, and my parents live in Orange. That's where I, I was. Well, I wasn't born, but it was, you know, I moved there when I was nine months old, I think. So they've been there for almost 40 years. And my sister, she moved away. They've come back. They live there. We don't live too far away either at this point. Um, are, you, uh, are you close with your parents? Did, or what was the parents' style like? Did you grow up? Uh, was mom there? Dad there? Was it... Uh, I, could, I could not find. I, I love... I just, it's always so interesting to me, family dynamics and kind of how we become who we become. So I'm just curious how, uh, what was it like for you on, on the parents' side of things? Um, well, I did have two parents. Hey, that's, that's, that's <laughs> I not always, tell always people, normal anymore. Uh, yeah, I guess that's true. Uh, but, I, but I do tell people that, um, hey, we're, we're all children. We may not all be parents, but we're all children. Yes. And so, yeah, I did have two parents and uh, two parents who were uh, together until my father died and then my mother was alone till she died. Oh, wow. Um, so it was, um, I guess, sort of like, like a classic nuclear family. 
Sure. How long were they married before your father passed? They got married in 1946 and my father died in 2009. Wow. So a while. It's like 60 something years. Is that right? Is that, is that proper You're good math? good at math. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. You know, I watched my grandparents. I remember I was about nine years old, I think, or eight years old going to their 50th wedding anniversary, like, you know, ceremony thing with a little tiny kid suit. And I just thought, how can you do anything for 50 years? How could you be alive for 50 years, let alone be married or do it's, it's just incredible. And yeah, I remember thinking the same thing um, at my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary party that had like the whole family got together and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So it was that, uh, how, do, how do you feel like that would have shaped you? Did you watch that and think, I love that, like I want that? Or were you like, hey, that's cool for them, but I want to do something different for me? Well, I think like, like many kids, um, what I saw in my own family was um, what I thought everybody did and I, what I thought was normal. And then you know, as you grow up, you start to um, sort of venture out into the world and you experience other things and you, you get influenced by what other people do outside your own family and your own community. And um, then you kind of decide on what your own path is going to be. You know, like right. as an example, you and I were chatting um, a little bit about entrepreneurship mm-hmm. and um, and as somebody who never really liked rules being imposed from the outside, um, I guess you could say that that is a good entrepreneurial trait, but in actual fact, I didn't become an entrepreneur until 12 years ago. Right. Yeah, you have a, a pretty fascinating background as entrepreneurs go. So was your, uh, I was looking, you, you've done quite a lot of engineering, right? You did. A small amount. Well, I studied a lot. You know, seven years of of school. I have a master's in chemical engineering. Ah. I used for about, you know, maybe four or five years professionally. Yeah. And and you worked for a few different spots doing process engineering or project engineering. Did did you know you wanted to be an engineer or was that? Oh, I was totally clueless. Um, It it was something that was sort of... um, that was suggested by my parents, uh, strongly suggested. What did your dad he, do? He was an engineer. <laughs> Shock the system. Right. And all of the people they knew who were in, you know, sort of safe, risk-free, stable lives were, had jobs like that. So um, it, it was strongly encouraged. And I, to be honest with you, I did pretty well in math and science in high school. There was no reason to try to buck the system at that point and do something else. Right. Um, in fact, I did better in math and science than I did in the humanities. So all the more reason to study something technical. I did pretty well in school studying engineering, which is a, it's a, you know, a pretty hard subject. Sure. Yeah. As a matter of fact, of the different engineering disciplines, chemical engineering is probably the hardest I would imagine. And I don't, I I don't know too much about it. I know some structural engineers, electrical engineers. Um, I've never met a chemical engineer, though. Well, it's, uh, it's a lot of technical courses, a lot of equations. <laughs> <laughs> you just uh, say that when my, my wife just cringed just hearing that word. You equation? Equation or math. And she's already like, do, do, do. I'm off. I'm thinking about something else. Love you, honey. But that's, yeah. <laughs> Makes uh, a, lot of, a lot of people cringe. Yeah, so I didn't really, I didn't really have a, a, a strong uh, rationale for trying something else. And as a matter of fact, if you study engineering, it's one of the few disciplines that um, you come 
with a bachelor's, at least this is the way it's taught in, in the US, when you come out with a bachelor's, you actually are ready for a profession. Unlike medicine or law or, or most other professional disciplines where you need higher education beyond a bachelor's degree in order to qualify for a job in that profession or to pass the, like pass the bar. Um, Absolutely. Right. Med school, et cetera. Right. So, um, so it's, it's, um, it's, it's an easier path to getting a, a well-paying job. Um, on the other hand, the downside is there's virtually no room as an undergraduate to take anything other than math, science, and engineering. So I have like, you know, my, my humanities pretty much stopped after high school. Right. Not um, a lot of political science and, and art. Zero and political science. No art history. <laughs> um, zero history. I yeah. did take two semesters of freshman English because that was required. And I wasn't great at it. Um, I actually learned the most grammar I learned was writing my master's thesis, which I learned from a chemical engineering advisor, which is interesting. <laughs> um, Full of equations. Yeah. So, so it's, um, so I didn't really have, have the exposure to other disciplines to sort of check other stuff out and think about it. Right. How, how do you feel like, like, as you got into like building your business, do you feel like there were some strengths or some, I don't know, some lessons you picked up as uh, whether it's engineer thinking or the discipline in engineering, like what translated across into business for you? Do you feel like? Um, yeah, there are actually some, some fundamentals of the way, um, the way I think about my business and frankly, the way, because my business um, is in large part helping other entrepreneurs generate greater success. Um, and the way that I solve problems is essentially reverse engineering the whole, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I want to look at is what's your exit strategy. Mm. And, and I don't mean like in three years or in five years, I mean, like when you die, when you look back at you're, you're on your deathbed and you look back, what do you want to be proud of? All right, right. let's figure out how to get there really truly start with the ultimate end in mind not just exactly. any end exactly wow. because if you look at the statistics on any business plan a rarely is the one that comes to fruition and generates the kind of success you want it's usually something else um, a very tiny fraction of initial plans actually work so um so what i like to do is look at the end and then work backwards from the end and just iterate backwards. Like if you think you're gonna be, you're gonna live till you're 100, all right, what's life gonna be like when you're 99? Right. What's it gonna be like when you're 95? What's it gonna be like when you're 90? What's the sequence of not just the kinds of uh, business and professional and career stuff that you're gonna be involved in? What, what are you gonna do with your family, with your community, with your volunteer time? And how, how do we create an integrated um, portfolio for you that is going to work for every aspect of your life going forward until we get back to this year. Now we're in 2018. So what do we need to do over the next, maybe the next 12 months to, to try to crack at that nut that we've just mapped out and back up even further. What do we need to do this quarter? 
What do we need to do this month? What do we need to do this week? How do you set up every day so that you can nudge forward a little bit on that success map? And that's a lot what smashing the plateau as a brand or as an idea or an ideology or a business, whatever you want to call it. That's a lot of what it's really about is, uh, is what it sounds like to me is smashing the plateau, going well beyond what you, the trajectory you thought you were going to be on and really going towards that ultimate end in mind. Um, you know, I've always been a big goal setter. Well, not always, but once I got into personal development, like 21, 22, I've always been really big on goals. Um, but very few people I meet have, you know, goals for when they're 90 years old or 100 years old, right? Um, and I remember doing that. I remember doing, writing goals all over my wall, right? Like right back in, you know, in my little house there. Um, and I put, I put goals, you know, 10-year goals, 20-year goals, 50-year goals. And I remember the longest I had was a 92-year goal. And I don't know how long I'm going to live, but you know, when I was 20, I was like, you know what, I'm going to be 120. So I made 120 year goals. And at the very minimum, I figured if you don't have a goal for what you're going to do post hundred, like why you wouldn't have any chance to live that far. Right. I can't guarantee it, but at least if I have a goal, I know that, you know, what I, I want to hike Mount Whitney uh, with four generations underneath me when I, with my great grandson, you know, um, as long as I have a goal, at least I have a chance to, to continue going forward in a healthy way, right? So are you, have you always been a big goal? And that might not be the right terminology that you would use, but like a goal setter or outcome creator, uh, reverse engineer of life. Has that been something that has been pervasive in your life always? Or did you get into that kind of as you got uh, further along? Um, let me actually give, give a tip first about goal setting and then, and then I'll answer the question. I'm ready for a tip. Okay, so the tip about goal setting is if you want your goal statement to be really powerful, it needs to be specific enough so that you know when you are working toward your goals, yet it needs to be qualitative enough so that you can never say, yes, I've done that. Interesting. It, should so not it, be it shouldn't be quantifiable. Can you give me some examples about that? When you say like it qualitative enough, explain kind of what, what does that mean? And, and what's an example of a goal that maybe would be well stated? And, and I, want, I want to be learning something new that adds to my, um, adds to my bank of resources every single day. Mm. So it's not quantitative in the fact of now I want to earn $50,000 and now I have, so now that's finished. Right. But at the end of the day, I could, if I, we're keeping a journal, I could say, this is what I learned today. Mm. And then tomorrow you can approach the goal again. Right. And, and if I have a day when I really truly didn't learn anything new, I could say, you know what? I didn't do such a great job today. Let's see if mm. I can bump it up a notch tomorrow. I love that. Do you, prefer, how. Do you prefer those goals? Uh, the, it's the, the only way to write goals. Well, I guess meaning the, the repetitive goal of, I want to do this thing that's a creation that I can do again and again. How do you feel about the goals like, okay, I want to write a book, right? Something like that where once I wrote it, I know I wrote it. And I don't know if I want to write another one. Well, what, what's your take on that style of, uh, of creation? Well, what you could say is mm -hmm. I want to be writing something and you could fill in why, you're, why you like writing. Um, I want to be writing something so that I am um, – Um, creating a concrete record that somebody else can read Ooh. 
that will help that person learn something new. I want to create a concrete record someone else can read that helps that person learn something new. Right. So you, would so you, could, have, you could always be doing that. So you'd rather have a goal around that rather than a goal of, I'm going to write this book and then the book's done. Do you find uh, when people do, because one of the things I, I, I see a lot, because you know, I study goal setting, of course, quite a bit and actions and behaviors and habits. I see that sometimes like, so say I, um, when I used to help people do uh, weight loss, right? That was a big niche that I did early on. And whenever someone came and said, I want to lose weight for a date, right? For, because the wedding's coming up, which is the most common one, almost always the momentum built like an arc and then it hit the date and then it diminished greatly. And oftentimes literally like crashed back down, talk about smashing the plateau. It fell off a plateau. And so I'd always say, well, how about we do this? Why don't we move into a healthy lifestyle and you lose as much weight as you do by the wedding. And then after that, you continue living a great healthy lifestyle with brand new habits and actions. And then you, and you continue getting to your ideal weight and just, and right. And moving towards that on making it more of a lifestyle goal rather than a, a, a momentary goal. Yeah. So the, the, the distinction is that momentary things that we're working toward, I call them objectives. Yes. Because um, they, have, they have very concrete milestones. So if I want to live a healthy lifestyle that includes eating a balanced diet, having, you know, you, you can describe the kind of foods you may want to include in your diet, but, but you know, maybe a balance of, um, if you're a carnivore, a balance of various types of foods that have uh, minimal um, uh, artificial sources or something like that, sure. um, and, and include... Uh, regular exercise to keep my my body fit to keep my brain functioning well um, as we get older balance is a big issue so to make sure that that um, you know humans balance is really important unlike four-legged creatures when we get to a certain age if our balance isn't good that can really impact our lifestyle um, and and often causes death in, in lots of cases when you fall and you break a hip or you fall and you um you know break a pelvis whatever so so you're talking literal balance or also figurative balance no i'm well? talking about little literal balance. literal balance uh so you can so you can describe those lifestyle goals um because you're going to always be working towards them and you could say my objective to do that is that let's say when I first create that goal, I realize that I need 20, I need to lose 25 pounds. Mm -hmm. You could say as part of my work towards these goals, I know that I need to initially lose 25 pounds. I'm going to do that by losing five pounds a month over the next five months. And I'm going to maintain that weight um, within, let's say a five to 10% range um, from that point going forward, and I want to include, I haven't, I've never done regular exercise. I yeah. want to establish a habit of, you know, a lot of people like this thing about walking 10,000 steps a day. So oh, okay. I, want to make, I want to make sure that walking is part of my regular habit. And to start with, I'm going to um, walk a thousand steps the first day, and I'm going to increase that by a hundred steps every day until I get to 10,000. Interesting. So hitting milestones, which is very, a very engineering project management thing to do, um, which I, I love. Um, I, I think there's a big piece that we're that in the entrepreneur space, we might be missing where you find a lot of visionaries, right? In general, you're gonna find a lot of visionaries, a lot of dreamers. And that's a great thing because we need to dream. 
but then we have tend to be uh, kind of shy on the implementers, the integrators, the, the project managers, as it were, right? The, the scheduling, the, the keeping things on task. So I love adding, having lifestyle goals that are evergreen, essentially, but then having milestones built within. That's uh, genius and brilliant. So um, if you're listening to this, that is the gem of the day from David Schreiner Khan so far. I love it. But there's more uh, to come. Right. So let me... F- Actually, I'll tell you one more tip about the milestones and then okay. I'll answer your question about how I, when I started creating these kinds of goal statements. Um, so the tip on the milestones is the hardest part, particularly for entrepreneurs, I think is the implementation of your ideas. It's I'd agree. easy for, for most of us to create a big vision. It's very hard to implement day in and day out. And so the basic steps that I like to follow, this is the engineering part, is you've got to, um, you've got to diagnose the problem so that you can create a plan. So diagnose, plan, and then there are four steps that you need to iterate over and over again, which are take the first step. And by the way, your plan needs to have um, both as I call them, goals and objectives. So, so you need okay. to have th- these, these very um, kind of big statements about what you're working towards, but then very clear objectives with milestones, with metrics, um, especially for business, you've got to have your key performance indicators. So then, then the four steps you need to follow is take a step, measure the results, and you're going to compare them to your key performance indicators, learn from the results, and then adjust your plan a small amount for the next step. And if you do this, and I, I find it generally works pretty well to do it kind of a week at a time, because most things will repeat on a weekly basis. If you can have a meeting, even if it's with yourself, where you're just looking at, at your progress on that path every single week. Yeah, that's great. And just take a step, measure the result, results, learn from the results, and then make a, a minor change in your plan. Uh, Rome wasn't built in a day. It was built in probably thousands of tiny days. Right. Right. So um, just keep at it and make sure that you have the support you need and the resources you need to keep persevering for a long time because that's what will create the breakthrough. Perseverance. Perseverance. Focus, discipline, and perseverance around that kind of structure. So that's the other tip. So now let's, let me answer it. your question about okay, go ahead. when did I start writing the goals? So um, there was a trigger that led me from being an engineer to not being an engineer. When I was in my late 20s, um, mm-hmm. I, I had a really good, my second job was a really good job. I was well paid. I did well. Um, I got great reviews. And then suddenly I found myself unemployed because the company I worked for lost a lot of its business. And I was devastated and trying to figure out what the heck am I going to do with my life? Um, And I really, in my heart, when I looked at it, I didn't really want to be corporate. I sort of knew that. I knew that something didn't quite fit. I got to figure out how to solve this problem. I ended up um, learning about a program called Life Work Design, Mm -hmm. which uses this formula that I just described of creating these goal statements that work for your life, no matter how long you live, mm-hmm. um, that again are b- broad enough so that you can never say I've achieved that, yet specific enough so you know you're working towards them with 
a whole set of objectives that will that you can check off as you're working towards your goals and you can constantly rewrite your objectives as you need to right because because you're going to go through one like if you decide okay i've never written a book before i have an objective i'm going to write a book within the next 12 months and here's how i'm going to do it well when the book is done you check off that objective you're still working towards your goal of creating a written word that will help other people learn how to live a better life and then you go on to the next written um written element right whether so that's a I blog learned, or an article or another book exactly or, exactly you can always write more and most people that are successful authors they're writing um they're writing either multiple books or they're writing in different formats etc um so i first learned that there and frankly the tools that i learned in that program i've used ever since they're remarkable and as a matter of fact the most recent iteration in my business is a partnership with the um the principles that are behind the life work design program and we're now using it to teach solopreneurs to build recurring revenue because one mm. of the biggest pain points i hear from my audience of solopreneurs is especially people that have been in their field for a long time like people that are consultants that have been in their field 20 30 years um i can't really afford to retire I'm too young to retire. I want to do something. I'm really good at what I do. I want to keep serving my target market. Um, I like what I do. It's just really hard to have consistent, stable revenue. How do, how right. do I solve that? And, and the, the reality is you can solve it. Recurring revenue is one of the, the keys to solving it. And you can deliver recurring revenue in most markets in, in various forms. It's just, it, anyway, that, um, Goals and objectives is, is one of the components of what we teach solopreneurs mm -hmm. um, because it helps create the framework so that they can identify how they're going to deliver recurring, how they're going to deliver their services on a recurring revenue basis. Right. And, and it makes perfect sense because to what I'm hearing is it ties right in with, again, recurring goals, recurring revenue. So rather than saying, I'm going to land a client, make money, and then I fulfill and then I'm done we have this expensive job where if I keep doing that, like, like I, I was so funny, so funny. So I was looking at, at exiting one of the, I have a couple of different businesses and I'm looking at exiting one and I'm looking up, you know, what, you know, how do you value different style businesses? And the interesting thing is, you know, in general, if you have say like a laundromat, you know, you might value it with a factor of five, you know, look at annual revenue times five and that's maybe what it's worth. But when it comes to a consulting business, the average is about a factor of one at the most. And at the, the reason most. is at the, at the very most, it's exactly. all about the consultant because it's all about the consultant. If you remove that cog, like if you're the salesperson and the talent, and if you remove the sales engine and the talent, what's that worth? Well, it's worth the database, which isn't nearly as much. Uh, so I love the idea of recurring revenue, recurring goals. You had a major change in life though. I thought you, uh, I'd love to ask you about that. When you went I from, it, it looks like it from engineering to engineering to engineering, right? Right. And then uh, it was right around what, early 80s, I um, saw so you were a director of a synagogue. Correct. And, and you had been, uh, was it two different places? Like kind of for a period of five years, what, was, what, what sparked a shift from the, the world of engineering to, uh, to the world of, uh, of, of religion, spirituality, of, of leading? It's such a, diff, to me, such a different uh, focus from process to people, right? Correct. Uh, I told problems. you I didn't want to be corporate. 
Yeah. So from strategy to community, and I'm, I'm sure communities, I know community is a huge part of what you do now. Is that where it started coming into play from your work experience there? How did you find yourself directing the synagogue? Um, That's amazing. Well, the, the short answer is yes, I really wanted to be involved in community, not, not in the process that involves things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I was able to um, learn enough about myself and the unique skills that I possessed with an understanding of what a particular marketplace needed to be able to make a proposal that resulted in my first job in the nonprofit sector. Mm-hmm. And was this uh, was the first job? Was was that a synagogue that you were uh, attending? Did you grow up Jewish? I did. Yeah, and and by the time you went there, are you? I'm always very curious. So like my wife and I also, we pastor a church, um, we're Christians and, and we just, I have, but I didn't grow up that way. So I'm always very curious on what the, the family element is, the growing up and then where we move from there. Did you grow up uh, like in the Jewish like culture and family as well as spiritual beliefs or was it more culture than it was spiritual? What, what was it like for you and your family? It was confused. It was confused. Yeah, people, you know, people like to ask, well, you know, particularly with, within Judaism, there are different denominations. Well, did you grow up Orthodox or did you grow sure. up Reform or did you mm-hmm. grow up unaffiliated? Um, and I usually just say, I, I just grew up confused. <laughs> There's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. They didn't really make sense. They weren't integrated. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I kind of found my own way. And you found your own way. So by the time you you got into saying, I, I actually want to work in the, the in whatever you want to call it, community or religious yeah, space. Or, community. Right? So you wanted to work in, in the spiritual community space. Um, where where were you personally at that, at that time? Like spiritually, personally, wh- wh- where had you come to by the early 80s when you were going to work there? Um, frankly, disconnected. Hmm. Yeah, I was not affiliated. I was married. We weren't members of any were you really practicing with your family or not really um yeah but minimally mm-hmm. just you know, kind of celebrate the holidays i mean one of the things about um about being part of a faith is that there are there's there's usually a time element that is um whether it's religious or cultural that's really tied to the faith so if you look mm-hmm. at you know, the, the entire world celebrates a seven day week. Right. Right. Most people, um, at least I, th- I think most people think about having at least one day that's not like the rest of the days. Right. right? Some which, kind of a day of rest. Right. Which if you look back at the Bible, that actually is one of the most remarkable things that humans created is the idea that it's good to have this pattern where there's one day that's different. Mm. It could lets us rejuvenate, right? right? Whether you're religious or whatever you do, we know that actually we, as humans, we can't work all the time. Right. So figuring out that sort of cycle. And then there's the cycle, you know, different faiths have different celebrations and different holidays. They're always tied to time. Right. Right. So like, um, you know, the American holidays come out the same time every year. 
on a, on a 12 month cycle. The Jewish holidays also follow a particular pattern. So no matter what you personally believe in or observe, there's often a, um, a connection to time mm-hmm. that's associated with, um, with a faith or a spiritual practice. So by the time you got into doing that for work, had you, it sounds like you had basically been, you still hang, you, you, you do the Judaism things, you do the, the family tradition stuff, the, you know, the normal things that any, any good Jewish kid's going to grow up and do, right? Because you don't want to walk too far away, but you also aren't like deeply practicing at that point. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I feel like that, that sounds like kind of where you are at that point. Right. So like, you know, we would, we would celebrate the holidays. Yeah. Um, as I said, we weren't, you know, like, like some people will be um, part of a community where they'll, they'll um, attend prayer services on a regular basis. We did not mm-hmm. do that. How important is community in the, in, in the Judaism faith and culture? Oh, I think it's really critical. I think a lot of the, um, the values that are rooted in the faith have to do with the um, mutual support between the individual and the community. Um, often through, uh, with families can be sort of an intermediary in that process, um, but it really is about individual and community. And if you look at people that as individuals have a strong connection to their faith, there is usually some strong connection to a community. And one of the ways you can tell if a community is working well is when individuals in the community are in a narrow place in their lives and the community is there to help them. You know, mm. So, so um, you'll see, as an example, when there's a death in the family, um, there, there, there are all these rituals around how the community supports the mourners. Right. And, um, you know, I remember there was a story in the, uh, the first synagogue that I worked at. One of the, um, one of the young couples lost a son, mm. first child at suddenly at like age 16 months. Oh gosh. And uh, the community itself demographically was pretty young. So it was the first time that something like that had been experienced. Mm-hmm. And the community was right there for them. And how, uh, how would they show up? What sorts of, like, how do you know community shows up? And again, whether it's faith in this case or, or any, so there's, so there's a ritual called Shiva, which is the first seven days after, um, after a funeral. Mm-hmm. And there is a, so there's a practice that the, the direct mourners who are the um, either mother, father, sister, brother, son, or daughter of the deceased mm-hmm. is not allowed to do any work. Mm. Um, they're not basically not allowed to take care of themselves. Hmm. Um, so, so other people so have not just to work, it. not just work right. like career, but no work like cooking, no right. work like vacuuming. Right. Gotcha. So people will swoop in, take care of the household stuff, prepare hmm. all the meals, do everything. Yeah. Wow. You know, I, I, I don't powerful. like the circumstance, but I love the power of that sort of community. I, I wish we had more places where that's normal to show up that way. Right. It also means in other circumstances, like let's say somebody who's the major breadwinner in a family suddenly loses a job and 
the family can't afford to just maintain their lifestyle. People mm-hmm. will be there to help. Right. Financially or otherwise yes. or everything. Um, all kinds of ways. You know, they'll make sure that the kids go to school. They'll make sure that, um, you know, there are, there are scholarship programs. There, um, nobody's, people don't, they don't, um, you know, if they're, if they're members of a, of a synagogue, as an example, the, the synagogue has an obligation to, to maintain the membership, even if the family can't afford it. Wow. Excuse me. Well, this, this is exciting, but uh, I had a young time. I've been up early this morning. Would you say there's a, a sense of, a greater sense of responsibility in the Jewish faith? Uh, as, again, as far as the culture, the people, the community, then you might find, I don't want to compare religions. I don't think that's fair, but um, I don't know. In other cultures and other places, would you find a higher sense of responsibility for the people around you, the traditions around you and so forth? Or is it something different? Is it not responsibility, but there's a different word for it? Well, I, I find actually that there is a difference between um, the kind of community I just described and what I consider to be kind of an American myth of the like the the self-made man, and and the myth is usually around a man, not a woman. Sure. Um, and I've found, particularly working a lot as an entrepreneur and with entrepreneurs, there is no such thing as a self-made man. Mm-hmm. Reality is that we succeed because we interact with other people. And in particular, the more that we interact with other people in a give and take relationship, the more we're able to succeed ourselves. And also the more that the other people around us are able to succeed. And so I find that that is one of the, powerful aspects of being in a community that there's a, mm-hmm. there's this give and take and there's an understanding that there's supposed to be a give and take it's not about we're doing all this on our own if you think about as an example the way our school system is structured um again this is you know this was my personal experience going through school i saw it with my kids and i don't think it's changed a whole lot um the idea that there is one right answer to every question and that we're supposed to be able to find those answers on our own. And we're supposed to be able to master a total breadth of subjects on our own. In right. the real world, it doesn't work that way. It's a, that's a crock, right? <laughs> yeah. The, the more, as a, especially as an entrepreneur, the more we're able to focus on what our core strengths are, build a team around us to yes. support us in areas where we're weak and look to other people for help and guidance, the, the more we succeed. It's like totally the opposite of school. And you bring a lot of that in now with, because uh, for the last 12 years, you've been doing 10 strategic partners, T-E-N-D is the name of your correct. company, correct? Correct. And yeah, that's our consulting business. Awesome. So a lot of what you're doing, you're helping people build their business, sustain excellence. And w- I'm just curious, how, how much of the engineering process work that you had done for years versus the community and, and um and some of that sustainability, right? Some of the support, um, what you were just talking about, right? Not having to be a self-made man or woman, but having the support around you. Do you do you draw from both of those experiences into when you're working with a client, or is there one is there is there one thing that's more prevalent over everything else that seems like, hey, if you went into every a hundred different uh, solopreneur businesses, is there an overarching theme? And just curious, how much comes from the um, the community side, how much from the engineering side, if any? It's both. It's Would you really, say it's kind it's of equally weighted? 
Yeah. It, it, well, I would say it's an integration of both. Mm. I mean, in reality, I practiced engineering for four or five years and I've been working for 40 years. Wow. So, so in terms of, you know, length of time, it's like 10% of my professional experience. Hmm. The, the community piece um, was probably, was like a little over 20, like 20, 25 years. Yep. And the entrepreneur piece at this point is about 12 years. So, wow. Uh, yeah. So the engineering piece is kind of part of the foundation. I wouldn't say that in terms of the amount of time that I spent at it, that it was so huge. But in terms of what I actually do with clients, it's a real integration. Mm-hmm. And I think the reality is that, that anyone who is, is a professional is integrating all these different components of his or her training skills and experiences. And the more you recognize that you have a unique blend of all of these skills, training, and experiences, the better, off, the better you're going to be at identifying where your sweet spot is and how you can help your target audience the most. Mm. That's, that makes really, really good sense. So if you feel like you're, and I guess you being uh, who's listening right now, if you feel like um, you, you need to take another step in your business, especially uh, in the solopreneur space, meaning that you're an entrepreneur and you're doing it alone, or maybe you have a part-time assistant or something like that. Um, if it's time to, to build in some structures some processes, um, I can't think of a better person than uh, a community director slash engineer slash entrepreneur. Um, you got an amazing mind, David. And um, I think people will be very, very lucky to, to share some time with you and to be able to, to learn from you or to be able to have you uh, spend time with their business. If, uh, if, if people want to reach out to you, do some quick, cheap plugs right now. Uh, what's the best way to connect with you, reach out to you? Um, obviously, you have the, the Smashing the Plateau podcast, so you should subscribe to that on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you get them. Um, 400 episodes, so there is a plethora of uh, knowledge base and, and interviews and teaching in there. So Smashing the Plateau podcast, but where else can they find you? Um, so there's a real old-fashioned method that works well which is called the telephone. Are you going to give your phone number? Yeah, I am. Okay, so, David's cell phone number is coming out right now, his nightstand uh, line. It's not, not my cell phone number. It's the business, the business <laughs> phone number, which gets answered by a live person, 9 to 5 Eastern time. 212, 212-731-0770. It's 212-731-0770. And whoever answers the phone can can uh, schedule a time for you to speak with me. You can go to our website, smashingtheplateau.com. Um, will take you to the the homepage and you'll be able to find contact information for me there, et cetera. There's a, there's a link to actually to a, an online scheduler. Um, but the phone actually works pretty well. It's, it's overlooked. That, can I tell you, that's amazing. You're, I think the first guest I've ever had who said, just call me. <laughs> that is outstanding. And the next we're going to send you a, a letter in the mail fan mail. I'm going to send you a little card that says, you know, here's my eight by 10 photograph. Please sign it, mail it back to me. Self-addressed stamped envelope. The eighties are coming back right now. The eighties are coming back. They're coming back. Um, David, thank you so much for taking the time uh, and being on. Um, Got a final question as we get to the, uh, as I always say, the twilight of our interview here. Um, If you, if you could give advice back to a younger you, you know, a 15, 20 uh, year old you, what would you tell them? And is there anything you would change? 
or would yeah, you keep it all the same? Yeah, yeah. So, so I would actually tell myself the same thing that people told me when I started getting into podcasting, which is if you're not embarrassed by the, the result of your first step, you waited too long to take it. <laughs> oh, good. Then I, then I did mine just at the right time. Good. Yeah. Wow. So that's what you tell yourself. And, and is there anything you'd change or would you do it all the same all over again? I would just take those steps sooner. Mm. Just have the courage to do it. Same thing. What's the worst that could happen? Worst that could happen very, is you very fail few miserably. Of us, very few of us are brain surgeons or heart surgeons where we're dealing with life and death every day. Most of the stuff we deal with, if we just had the courage to take those steps sooner, we'd be a whole lot better off and the people we serve would be a lot better off. Wow. On that note, I can't say it better. Uh, David Schreiner, thank you so much for taking the time with us. Um, we're going to put a link to uh, your website and the phone number in the show notes. So if you didn't grab that, don't worry. It's just look at, and it'll be right there. And uh, make sure you reach out to David. He actually does want to hear from you. So give him a call. Pull over on the freeway right here, right now. Uh, give him a call. Thank you, David. Appreciate Thanks your so time. Much, really. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Bye. Hey, thanks again for David Schreiner-Khan coming on. I certainly appreciate uh, his his time and his energy. Uh, I know you're a busy guy, so thank you for coming on the podcast. Very, very appreciated. Remember to check out David and, fi- and follow him. Of course, you can follow him on all things social media. We'll put each one of the links. Uh, so I don't have to spell it out. We'll put that right in the show notes for you. So make sure you check that out. Follow him on uh, social media. You can also, of course, follow the Smashing the Plateau podcast. And I'll spell it for you because I can't seem to spell very well. Plateau is P-L-A-T-E-A-U. T-E-A-U. So Smashing the Plateau. Follow him on, on iTunes and he's all over the place, of course, just like you know every podcast. You can find that. And then, of course, you can also check out his website, smashingtheplateau.com. That's smashing the plateau, P L A T E A U dot com. Uh, follow him, check it out. He will be a just a gem in your business, in your life. A really, really great resource to have at your fingertips. Thanks again, David, for coming on, and thanks for listening. Hope you have a great weekend. I certainly am. I'm getting some sleep tonight. I'm getting ready for day two tomorrow. We are going to be diving deep into some NLP breakthrough patterns that will help you on stage and help you in in unconscious and indirect communication. Today we talked about metaphors. Tomorrow we're teaching about what we call the five archetypes of communication. In fact, maybe I'll do a podcast episode on some of this stuff once my voice comes back. So wish me luck. Pray for me. Uh, I certainly uh, appreciate all that. I take it in. And yeah, I'm going to finish up the next couple of days and then we will chat again on Teaching Tuesday when we have a new insight and a new look. Remember to check out the archives if you haven't already. In the archives, uh, the last one we talked about was playing small. Don't play, or I said I call it quit playing small, episode 71. So in there, I talked about how you should quit playing small, but also quit playing big. There's a good chance that in an unhealthy way, sometimes we play small unhealthily, and sometimes, if that's a word, unhealthily, and sometimes we play big also unhealthily because we're trying to make something of ourselves rather than just seeing who we are and celebrating who we are first and then play at the level you want to play with. I have a great conversation with myself wrestling with the concept of playing big or playing small. So listen in episode 71, the last one in the archives. I think you'll dig it. All right. Thanks again for tuning in and I will chat with you next week.